Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to The Water Cooler. I'm Miranda Khan filling in for David Brody today from our West Palm Beach studio here in Florida. It is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, and we begin with the long-awaited summit between President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin. So just about an hour and a half ago, President Biden spoke live from Geneva, Switzerland, about what the two world leaders discussed over the course of roughly three hours. Among the big topics were cybersecurity, human rights, Russia's involvement with the Ukraine, and the future arms agreement. That meeting describing the tone from the president as positive. Of course, this comes, though, as tensions between the United States and Russia seem to be escalating toward an all-time high. Joe Weber, news editor with Just the News, will join us live shortly with some of the biggest takeaways from that summit. Plus, more action today in Israel just days into the newly formed government. According to the New York Times, the Israeli military conducted an airstrike into the Gaza Strip. Strip rather. This happened last night after Hamas uh, sent incendiary balloons into southern Israel from Gaza. This was the first act of confrontation after Netanyahu was officially removed from power. Also, more revelations coming from the Fulton County, Georgia area regarding the 2020 presidential election. We're going to have more on that with Real America's voice correspondent, Heather Mullins. And finally, did COVID actually emerge in the U.S.? When did it happen? New reports suggest that COVID could have entered the U.S. as early as Christmas of 2019. That was several weeks before the first cases were actually even reported. So why is that? We're going to dive more into that and the dangers of the new Delta variant later with Dr. J. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. First, though, I want to bring in Joe Weber, news editor with Justin News, joining us live from our D.C. studio. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. So first, uh, let's talk about this. It was the first big meeting between these world leaders, uh, cybersecurity, obviously, a big issue and you know in light of those recent cyber attacks all of which seem to stem back to russia what were some of your biggest uh takeaways from this meeting that again they had slated for about four or five hours but it actually been was about three hours that's correct yeah and before we get into sort of the meat of uh, the dueling press conferences and the substance of the uh of the meetings themselves just a little bit of perspective you have to remember here for a couple things one uh Putin has been president uh, for Russia for about collectively 13 years. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, two years as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, then eight years as vice president. These are two world leaders that are very adept and skilled uh, on the world stage in the rhetoric, stayed largely on message. I know the Biden administration, quote unquote, wanted to tamp down expectations about what would happen here. And what we really right. saw was they stuck to the issues. Um, we did not a whole lot of new news having been made, but a lot of ground was covered in a wide-ranging press conference with Putin that lasted more than an hour. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, the president uh, spoke a little earlier than what was anticipated. He was scheduled to talk about 1.30 Eastern time, but it actually occurred about 10 minutes earlier. 
um, and what appeared to be him using a teleprompter. Uh, can you, for our viewers who were unable uh, to see that press conference, kind of give us a little uh, background of what you saw and heard from the President of the United States? Well, he said a couple of things. One, uh, he really made the issue of cybersecurity uh, a top priority. It was largely, you could tell, basically the takeaway that that was discussed at length and frequently. He talked a little bit about, well, he said specifically that he gave Putin a list of 16 different do not touch items, including cybersecurity, and posed the question to him, how would you feel if part of your infrastructure uh, was attacked? And uh, Putin, he said, responded basically, I think that your question is important. Uh, again, you're sort of parrying Putin, the master, at doing that every right. time sort of they would ask him a question, the reporters would ask him a question about human rights violations vis-a-vis -vis Alexei uh, Navalny, he would talk about Black Lives Matters, or he made reference to George Floyd, which not specifically, as he never even mentioned Navalny, by the way, uh, but just referencing it, putting it back, um, back to the infrastructure issue. This is all vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Colonial Pipeline. We talk about infrastructure, which was, I guess, last month, uh, hacked right. with malware. It affected, it provides three-fourths of the gas to the East Coast. That shut it down, caused gas prices to spike, shortages. Uh, they don't, both of them, I think, agree that they really don't want this to happen. But again, you know, they're out on the stage. And this is, you know, the two biggest world powers competing for one another. Who knows what will happen? Yeah, it, it's interesting. So we, you know, you mentioned the Colonial Pipeline. And we also had JBS. Yes, uh, the world's, the what, fifth largest distributor uh, when it comes to uh, meat. Uh, those two things happening, Russia claiming to have nothing to do with it, even yeah. though everything seems to stem yeah. back to Russia. And right. then reports now that there have been some exercises very close to Hawaii, about 300, 500 miles away from Hawaii, that had happened as early as Sunday. Yes. Exercises that, frankly, we haven't seen since the Cold War. Yet we're hearing from both of these world leaders describing this meeting, again, this three-hour meeting between the two of them as being positive and constructive. Yeah, he, they, Biden said no hostility. Again, when pressed about you know, the um, Russia's intrusion right to the border of the Ukraine a couple weeks ago, or maybe just last month, with about 2,500 uh, military personnel, and they just pulled back. Uh, when questioned about that, he talked about um, U.S. building up its forces against Russia. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he was talking about. Maybe he was referring to some sort of response uh, to these ships coming very close to Hawaii. I don't know. Uh, Biden also said, by the way, he, don't think, he doesn't think that Russia, quote-unquote, orchestrated uh, was specifically behind the cyber attack where we think it came from uh, on the Colonial Pipeline. And, you know, when the reporters pressed him about, well, what did you say? What did you, did you tell them specifically what you're going to be resp your response is? He was more measured about it to say, well, if you do that, I can guarantee you that I'm going to respond. But he never w took the next step to say exactly how that would be. Now, he didn't make mention that some ambassadors have been pulled as a result of the Colonial Pipeline right. intrusion. Yeah. Um, but that's a well, bit of a I half step. Yeah. Yeah, I do want to go back because we talked about this whole idea and you brought it up, uh, Navalny, uh, the president not mentioning him by name. Uh, for people who are not familiar with this, there have been reports about this prisoner swap notion that didn't really seem to take center stage at all when it came to uh, the president's live address here in Geneva. But what can you tell our viewers about that? Okay, yeah, two things. Let me try to break them out. Navalny is a uh, sure. political dissident. He's run against uh, Putin. He's been basically, for lack of better words, a thorn in Putin's side for a long time, calling for fair elections. Uh, earlier, late last year, earlier this year, he was poisoned. 
uh, and he was on a plane to Siberia. Uh, he quickly got off that plane. He got sent to Germany. The scientists there said it looked like nerve gas uh, from the Cold War. Now Putin said today, Putin, excuse me, said today that he intentionally uh, has broken the law. And so, you know, one would argue he certainly didn't intentionally uh, get poisoned with nerve gas. Now he's in prison now. As soon as he came back to Russia, uh, they arrested him for a previous crime. Uh, he's in there. He's going on a hunger strike. Uh, he's come near death. I, I have to say, you know, for everyone's uh, interest in this, all interests, uh, he's better off alive for everyone. Navalny wants to stay alive because he knows that whatever he does, uh, he's, you know, alive much better. He can be far more effective alive than dead. Putin certainly doesn't want him dead. I know Navalny's family doesn't want him dead. He has a young child, and I don't think Putin politically wants him dead either. So that's where yeah, we stand. Yeah, we'll continue uh, the, to. Well, the other Go two ahead. issues, sorry, Paul Jeff. Whelan and uh, Tyrone Reed. Trevor Reed. Trevor Reed, excuse yeah. me, yes. Now, Whelan's a former security contractor, Reed, a former m Marine. Uh, Whelan was picked up on the idea of espionage. Reed, oddly, in some sort of driving incident where he grabbed the arm of a Russian soldier. Anyway, these two guys are behind bars in Russia. Uh, they talked about the idea that they would possibly work out a deal, but there was no specifics. They talked about, you know, the um, opposing ambassadors really kind of going back to their neutral corners to work out all these issues, but no specifics there. Uh, Joe, uh, we're running uh, tight on time now, but basically, again, this this press conference lasted give or take 20 to 30 minutes there. Um, but the bottom line is, where do we go from here? Uh, the president and the president of Russia both saying that they, they thought it was constructive. Uh, do you uh, think, what do you anticipate happening in, in the weeks and months ahead based on what you heard from the president today? Real quickly, last 30 uh, seconds. Reporter's opinion, I don't think much. I think they made a lot of promises, but these are two world powers. I, I don't really see where they're going to get together on a lot of things and work together. I think, you know, one attack on one's infrastructure and one attack on the other is, you know, that's kind of, you know, the dirty, the elbows of politics. And um, well, the one issue that they might, they talked about the emergence of new nuclear weapons, and they're going to go back and take a look about the two countries that own the most nuclear weapons and what they can do with these emerging weapons to try to have some responsibility as superpowers on um, the responsibility toward the whole world to not, to not blow it up. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some sort of agreement there post-Star star 3. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Weber, a news editor with our news partners at Justin News. You can read much more about what the president had to say during that live press briefing again that took place in Geneva, Switzerland during the G7 summit. Thank you so much for joining us today. Stick around. There is still much more to come. Some new updates on the presidential election on that recount. Remember, that's happening in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, Real America's Voice correspondent Heather Mullins gives us the very latest details coming up. We'll be right back. You're watching The Watergate. And welcome back to The Water Cooler. New revelations coming out of Fulton County, Georgia. They're now uh, piquing the interest of the Secretary of State there. Brad Raffensperger just announced that his office is now opening an investigation into whether county officials violated state law. The issue? the apparent mishandling of absentee ballots. On Monday, Raffensperger posted on Twitter saying this, new revelations that Fulton County is unable to produce all ballot drop box transfer documents will be investigated thoroughly, as we have with other counties that failed to follow Georgia rules and regulations regarding drop boxes. This, he says, cannot continue. 
And that is where I want to welcome in Real America's Voice correspondent Heather Mullins, who has been covering the election integrity issue in Fulton County, Georgia, since the very beginning. Heather, uh, you have been top of this issue. Uh, explain what is going on right now. How did this investigation like come into existence? Yeah, so this uh, investigation came into existence specifically. If you're if you're referring to Raffensperger's, it's because of the fact that. Uh, over the last few months, there's been open records requests done on the chain of custody records for these drop boxes. And when you think of the fact that allegedly Joe Biden won the state of Georgia by a little over 11,000 votes, and what we're talking about is chain of custody records for drop boxes that would account for 18,000 votes. So we don't know who handled those basically ballots before they were counted in the election. And now Brad Raffensperger, he's gone on the record several times criticizing Trump, criticizing yep. uh, people claiming there was any fraud in Georgia. In fact, he sent a 10-page letter to Congress on the 6th telling them that his office had thoroughly investigated all claims and found nothing. Now he's going on the record saying that 18,000 ballots in Fulton County have no chain of custody records, so we don't know whose hands they slipped through. We don't know that they're authenticated. And now we have this lawsuit, the one that I've been talking about for months now on this network uh, with Garland Favorito and, and some other plaintiffs where a judge unsealed the absentee and mail-in ballots in Fulton County. So these same ballots would have come through those drop boxes and now they're supposed to be audited but uh, as we discussed about a week or two ago, when it was all set for the plaintiffs to meet with Fulton County officials at the ballot warehouse to go over the procedure for accessing these ballots that were unsealed, you had Fulton County retaining two of Georgia's top criminal defense attorneys that filed motions to try to stay the proceedings and basically uh, stop it from moving forward. Yeah, I remember uh, us discussing that as well. But let's uh, kind of break it down a little bit for our viewers. What what do you what do they mean by chain of custody? That sounds like a very fancy term. And layman's terms, what does that mean? So what that means, uh, Miranda, is that each drop box in Georgia, under Georgia law anyway, are, are, they're required to be surveilled by 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in addition to that, anybody that goes and accesses the ballots in that Dropbox is supposed to fill out a form. You sign it with witnesses, it's supposed to be two people. Um, so there has to be a chain of who put the, who went there, who opened the ballot Dropbox, where did they transport them, who did they give them to once they got there. And so you have a record of every single hand that touched those ballots from the moment they left the voter's hand to the moment they're put into the archives and stored. So you're supposed to have all of this recorded. And what we don't have now is 18,000 ballots coming out of those drop boxes, knowing who touched them, where they went, and how they ended up basically in, counted in our election. I mean, they could have come from, from anywhere, right? And one of the right. allegations made by people that gave sworn affidavits used in the lawsuit to unseal ballots was that she came across a stack of ballots that appeared like they had been printed off of a printer. And another woman in that same lawsuit said that her job was to print test ballots on official voter roll paper and that stacks of those ballots had gone missing. So there's a lot of unanswered questions that hopefully this lawsuit's gonna point us in the right direction.
getting answers. But I do want to go back. Yeah, and hopefully we do uh, find some of the answers because here we are in June, right? Uh, but yeah. you mentioned this. Uh, there's been a lot of sparring because um, it wasn't that long ago, um, November, the Secretary of State there, Raffensperger, uh, pretty adamant, if you will, that the presidential election was safe and secure in his state. Now, several months later, open to this idea of procedures and investigating. So what, when can we expect this investigation to be wrapped up and answers uh, to these questions that you bring up that are, seem very legitimate? Well, Miranda, um, I honestly wouldn't expect much from uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's investigation. Unfortunately, this information was all available, and he, we've been saying this for months now. So why he's backpedaling is news to me. Um, where you're going to find answers is a lot of the, the third parties that are doing their own investigations right now. Um, there's actually some big revelations coming out in the next few weeks where uh, you have a potential ballot harvesting scheme that's going to be unveiled in Georgia. Uh, what ended up happening was is a group who I spoke with had spent the last few months purchasing data um, that basically tracks movement around drop boxes. So a perfect example, if you've ever used Google Maps, right, and you're walking around a city, every few seconds it pings your data to your mobile device and updates it. Well, people have actually purchased data using what's called geofencing around these drop boxes. So any phone numbers that walk within a certain amount of space to these drop boxes, it pings their location. And they've been able to hmm. track the same numbers to multiple drop boxes and to Democrat nonprofit organizations. So there's a lot gonna be coming out. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what this data is being Sounds like it. Now. But these are the investigations that are going to unveil much more than Secretary of State Raffensperger's. Yeah, and we're going to continue uh, to follow this story, as you have been, again, for several, several months. Uh, you can always follow Heather Mullins and get the very latest by following her on Twitter. That is Tuck Mullins. Heather Mullins, thank you for the very latest update on that. We'll continue uh, to bring updates here on Real America's Voice. Thank you, Miranda. Up next here, uh, the CDC now issuing a new warning after the discovery of a new COVID variant. What that could mean for states just now starting to reopen. And when did COVID actually strike here in the U.S.? We'll discuss these issues and much more with Dr. J. He is a professor at Stanford University. That's all coming up when Water Cooler continues. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the water cooler. So uh, let's talk about uh, more and more states opening up. Uh, you're probably seeing that with some of these COVID restrictions uh, being lifted in states like California and also New York. Uh, recently, we just saw California open up yesterday. That is considered to be the most populous state in the country. They apparently gave more than 40 million doses of the vaccine there. Now, as the country is reopening, the question many in the national capital were left wondering is, what's the plan when it comes to 4th of July, right? Well, will it be in person this year? Will people be allowed to go to the National Mall? Remember, they weren't allowed to do this last year because of COVID. Well, got some good news for you. The president says, yes, they will have an in-person celebration. And yes, you can't be at the National Mall. 
So fireworks will be going off there as it has in years before COVID. If you haven't seen it, it is an incredible sight to behold. And the president says, um, basically, this will be the biggest event that he has hosted since becoming president. There's expected to be a cookout uh, on the South Lawn of the White House. Uh, that is to honor those that have been working on the front line. This includes, you know, military officials, healthcare workers, first responders, you know, those essential workers. So interesting note, the Associated Press reports that the event is called a Summer of Freedom and that over 1,000 guests are expected to come. Uh, whether or not we'll see that, obviously that remains to be seen. Uh, we are still a little less than a month away from that. So to those of you celebrating cross states, have no fear. Again, the White House saying that they're going to have a celebration. So this is a statement, again, about the Summer of Celebration. It reads, we welcome you to join us by hosting your own events to honor our freedom, salute those who have been serving on the front lines, and celebrate our progress in fighting this pandemic. This according to the statement released from the White House. So uh, to other officials, the administration are writing this. America is headed into a summer dramatically different from last year. I think we can all agree to that. A summer of freedom, a summer of joy, a summer of reunions and celebrations. So New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing that the state will have its own celebrations there after it recently hit the 70% mark um, when it comes to people being vaccinated in that state. And although rates are kind of slowing down, this is because more and more people are becoming vaccinated. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying that they're continuing to make this a priority for this administration. And speaking of which, the president is expected to highlight the effectiveness of the vaccine uh, and also talk about the drop in COVID cases during that 4th of July speech. So regardless of your stance on the vaccine, the change in COVID cases and just reopening the economy, that's gonna be good news for everybody, except there are some of those states like South Dakota, you may recall Christy Nome, not too happy the Biden administration uh, squashing this idea of them being able to have fireworks at Mount Rushmore. Uh, this, while well, they're having their own celebration, she's calling this hypocritical. Um, do you agree? Do you disagree? You can always let Just the News know uh, by finding us on Twitter and also Real America's Voice. Love to know your thoughts on that. But as I mentioned, uh, more and more states officially lifting their COVID restrictions as people get vaccinated. Uh, there is, though, new concerns um, about whether or not we're doing this too soon. This is because lots of other variants have come out. Now, most people haven't been paying much attention to variants like the UK. We've kept a watch on this. A lot of scientists have said to expect this to happen, that we're going to see more and more mutations. However, the CDC uh, actually uh, raising up the red flag when it comes to one particular variant, and that is the Delta variant. Uh, we're going to be talking more about that with a Stanford University professor coming up. Um, but... Uh, BBC news journalist Nick Watt, uh, we're hearing reports now that he, just breaking into our newsroom, uh, was chased down by an angry anti-lockdown mob. Again, this is BBC news journalist Nick Watt uh, chased down by an angry anti-lockdown mob. This just breaking into our newsroom. We're going to continue to monitor that story and find out why that is. Uh, I think we actually have some video, uh, so stand corrected. We have some video. I want to share that with you right now. Let's go ahead and take a look.
Quite a sight. Again, that was BBC News journalist Nick Watt, as you saw, being chased down by what appeared to be a pretty angry anti-lockdown mob. We'll have more details on this with Just the News and also Real America's Voice. Uh, coming up next, Rick Green discusses this whole idea, basically COVID passports. That's still to come. You're watching The Water Cooler. Welcome back to the water cooler. So we spoke about COVID-19 earlier and again, more and more people out there getting vaccines. The Biden administration expecting that to slow down a little bit. But remember, he did set that very ambitious deadline for the 4th of July. But there's one thing asking you to do it and another thing requiring you to do so. So if you work at one Houston hospital, well, apparently that is the case. So here's a headline, judge ruling in favor of a Houston hospital requiring its employees now to be vaccinated against COVID-19. So basically, here's the gist of the story. A group of 100 plus employees at Houston Methodist Hospital filed the lawsuit against the hospital for requiring them to get the vaccine in order to continue working there. Now, these employees refused to do it. That was a mandate arguing that the vaccine is experimental and, according to them, dangerous. But a U.S. District Judge, well, ruled against them and decided to side with the hospital. So could we see other businesses, not just hospitals, possibly follow suit and be successful? Joining us live now to discuss more about this issue, to give us his legal analysis, is America's Constitution coach and founder of PatriotAcademy.com, Rick Green. Good to see you, sir. Hey, Miranda, great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So first and foremost, is this, I just have to ask, uh, an infringement on one's personal liberties that some would say is granted to us uh, by the Constitution? Yeah, listen, we've, we've actually got a rich history of, of uh, cases where nurses have sued and, and reserved and preserved the right to refuse a vaccine. Um, and we're talking about vaccines that were not experimental. Here we're talking about one that is experimental. We don't have uh, the research and the data on this for anyone to feel like it's 100% safe. It's everybody's decision, right? You weigh the risk of, of the virus and, and, and what are your chances of being harmed by the virus? And 997 to 99.9% .9 of folks will be fine if they get the virus, but there is that small percentage uh, that could experience serious illness or even death. So based on that small percentage, is it worth it to get the experimental vaccine? And we've always let individuals make those decisions, even hospital employees, but this hospital has decided to demand it. 
actually not even for for new employees but current employees these are some of these employees are employee of the month employee of the year i mean these are good employees right. saying listen i just don't want to get it yet um and i might have natural immunity that's the thing that's ignores that they're not even factoring in natural immunity which is even better than the vaccine so if i was an employer i'd be saying okay wait a minute if i'm really looking out for my patients if you get the natural immunity you're actually better off we've already seen the studies now Nobody's getting it twice. You're not carrying it for other people. But if you get the vaccine, we've already seen people share the virus because they got the vaccine or they get the virus after they've got the vaccine. So why would you not let people go with natural immunity? I mean, you don't even have to have the the very low bar cerebral activity of Joe Biden to figure that out. Well, I mean, this is obviously an issue that we've heard Senator Rand Paul bring up time and time again, but this is a little tricky, right? So this is a privately owned institution. Um, There are public schools that require certain vaccines in order to go there. There are HIPAA laws. So this can get kind of complicated, if you will. Can you kind of break it down into layman's terms for you will, if you will, for this idea of requiring people to do it, private institution versus public institution and whatnot? That's right. And look, I'm a private property rights guy, private business, individual rights there. You know, government should not be going in and telling businesses what they have to do or can't do. But unfortunately, that's what we've been doing for many years in America. We micromanage the free market, unfortunately, from the government perspective. And and we've got very clear law that you have uh, privacy for your health care and, and for an employer uh, to demand you to reveal what your decisions have been in this case or in this case to make you make a decision you wouldn't otherwise uh, make it violates all kinds of case law that we've we've dealt with. From a constitutional perspective, we've clearly got rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution. That's what the Ninth Amendment is all about: is that we have individual rights, certainly to our privacy and our health. I would argue to be able to breathe freely without the government forcing a mask on you as well. Um, normally, we would say you have to have what we call a compelling interest. It's got to be a really, really serious thing, and you've got to narrowly tailor it, and it's got to be least restrictive. All those things we typically argue in constitutional law. In this particular case, this is something that an individual has a right to make this decision. If the employer wants to fire them because they're not willing to have a particular vaccine, then we're talking about opening the door to all kinds of abuses on that with all the other vaccines out there as well. Yeah, and, you know, we've heard from some governors, for example, you know, the governor of Florida actually taking steps, in fact, to ban what is being described as COVID password or passports, rather, could right. we see, you know, based on what this judge, how he ruled, could we see this go all the way up to the Supreme Court, in your opinion? Yeah, in fact, uh, the, the guy that's handling this case, Jared Woodfills, great attorney out of Houston, good friend of mine. He's already vowed to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. So this thing is definitely not over. This will probably be a bellwether case uh, for the rest of the country since it's the first one in. Uh, we'll see what happens with it. I don't think it'll be the last challenge. I think we're going to see this in other areas besides hospitals. Um, so, and it's actually, there's, there is some gray area here. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't say that it's going to be black and white where this thing's going to come down or where the Supreme Court's going to go. You know, Amy Coney Barrett had a decision before she was appointed to the Supreme Court while she was on the Seventh Circuit that dealt with COVID. Um, I personally, in reading the decision, didn't think that it was a good decision, uh, even though it narrowly was protecting religious liberty. It was opening the door for a lot of regulation on the government's part without answering that question I was talking about earlier. Is there a compelling interest here? You know, if it was Ebola and 50% of people that got this were dropping over dead, 
we'd probably have a little bit different scenario here. But we're talking about a virus that 99.7 to 99.9, depending on the study you look at, are going to do fine with. And there's just not a compelling interest for government to force these things on us. Yeah, and there's nothing to say that someone couldn't lie. I mean, we've talked about reports of people already forging and saying that they, you know, they have it when they haven't had it. Uh, so it will be interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Again, we mentioned a, a lot of gray area there when you talk about HIPAA laws, private businesses versus public entities. So we'll, uh, of course, continue to monitor that. Rick Green, hey, uh, thank and you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Say it. One other thing. I just want to say, let's make sure, you know, people keep saying follow the science. I agree with that. Let's make sure that we demand of these employers and the government to truly follow the science. They're all leaving out the natural immunity piece right now. Everybody's so focused yeah. on the vaccine and they forget the 35 million people in America that we know of that have had it now have a natural immunity that's better than the vaccine. Let's not forget those folks and let's not force the vaccine on those folks. Rick Green, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it, sir. You bet. Thanks, Miranda. All right, stick around. The last sip is next. The 4th of July is a much anticipated event in our nation's capital. More on what the president has in store this year when we come back. You're watching The Water Cooler. And welcome back to The Water Cooler. Time for The Last Sip. So in case you didn't know, it is Pride Month. And in honor of that, children's show Blue's Clues just released a video on its YouTube channel using children to discuss LGBTQ+. Take a look. Look, I made a pride decoration. These flags represent different parts of the LGBTQ plus community. This rainbow flag is called the gay pride flag. Wow. This flag is called the non-binary pride flag. This flag is called the lesbian flag. And this flag is called the transgender pride flag. There's so, so many more flags. Lots of different communities celebrate pride month. So cool. And there you just saw, yes, that was Blue's Clues, which airs on Nickelodeon. That is a video that they just released on its YouTube channel. Curious to know your thoughts about that. Uh, take a look at that video and then share your voice with us. That is something that we aim to do on this entire network, no matter which show it is you watch. Uh, you can find us on social media at Real America's Voice. You can also uh, tag us. Let us know. Hashtag share your voice. What do you think about that? Love to know your thoughts. Uh, There's so much more to come here on this edition of The Water Cooler. Just the news. Nick Vallisi is going to jo join us. Uh, just the other day, he released an article talking about the infrastructure deal. Uh, and he said uh, to me specifically and to viewers, well, anything can happen in a day. And boy, did it. Uh, there was apparently this infrastructure deal that was going to take place. Uh, this was a bipartisan deal headed to the White House. They were reviewing it. Uh, but now it appears that may be going bye-bye. Joining us now is Nick Ballasey with Just the News joining us live. Hey, Nick. Hey, how's it going? It's going. Uh, I don't want you to give too much away, but you said it. Your words exactly on this very network. Anything can happen. A lot can change in 24 hours. So give us a little tease on what just happened. Ten seconds to you, and then we'll give the rest of the answer coming up after the break. 
Yeah, so it sounds like the bipartisan deal, whether it happens or not, the Democrats are going to go forward in the Senate with the budget reconciliation process. So that means a massive bill could be passed, a massive spending bill reflecting Biden's a budget plan. A massive bill, and we are going to talk about that coming up right after the break. Nick, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And welcome back to The Water Cooler. Joining us once again, Nick Ballacy, congressional correspondent with Just the News. So, uh, Nick, sorry we had to cut you off. We just didn't want to give everything away. But I have to say, it's a good thing that I didn't place a bet because you said just the other day uh, that you thought anything could happen on this. And I really was thinking, okay, I guess they have a deal when it comes to infrastructure because it seemed like last week it was dead. Then at the very end of the week, it was like, no, 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 we have a bipartisan uh, deal framework coming up from senators. In fact, White House is reviewing it now. And then, wow, what a difference 24 hours can make. So where do we stand right now? Where we stand right now is the Democrats in the Senate are moving forward with the reconciliation process, meaning they'll be able to pass a massive bill on infrastructure and spending in other areas uh, for Biden's budget. They'll be able to do that solely on a party line vote. So they don't need Republican votes to build this reconciliation bill and get it through past the finish line. That's where we stand right now. And Schumer made it clear yesterday that regardless of whether this bipartisan framework turns into an actual bill that could pass the Senate, the Democrats are going to use this reconciliation process to get through whatever is not in that bipartisan agreement. Yeah. So he actually said we're working on two tracks, that bipartisan framework, which he said clearly doesn't do enough when it comes to climate change and raising revenue, raising taxes. So he said the other track is reconciliation, which is going to happen regardless of what happens on the bipartisan front. So buckle your seatbelts. Who knows what could be in this reconciliation bill? What it looks like right now, though, is it, it, it may be a massive one with the, with the Biden yeah. budget, which is $6 trillion, and then anything else that they want to add in that could be qualified under the reconciliation rules. Well, I know that you have been very much on top of that. That's why I didn't place a bet against you, because you were right. Uh, but for our viewers that are watching right now, you can read more details about this by going to justthenews.com and be sure and follow Nick Ballacy on social media. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. And that will be a wrap for today's edition of The Water Cooler. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure and tune in tomorrow at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Again, I'm Miranda Khan. Have a great night.